Take your Bibles out this morning, and as you do, I certainly want to welcome our Malawi group back. We've had, uh, as Kevin mentioned, 25 away in Malawi. Got in, I think, uh, the last chain of them got in uh, a little after 8 last night. So I'm sure they are kind of sleepy this morning. And, and also the Sullivans in our church, a couple that comes to the early hour, they've been in Bolivia uh, on mission work, and they're back as well. So we want to welcome all these folks back. Uh, I want to invite you this morning to find the book of Acts in your Bible. You know, I was thinking about uh, Easter and the passion of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And uh, as I was thinking through and praying about where we need to go next in our messages, I thought, you know what? The natural place to begin is how the events happened right after uh, the resurrection. Uh, we see the events of the book of Acts uh, unfolding. And so over the next number of weeks, beginning in two weeks, today's message is sort of an introductory message. But then beginning in two weeks, we'll start going through the book of Acts. I don't know that we will go through every passage of every chapter but uh, we're going to get a good look at the Lord's business and what he expects and asks the mission of the church to be. And so the overall series I've entitled Good News for the World because that indeed is what the gospel is, good news for the world. And this morning we want to look at Acts 1, filled, focused, and obedient. But before we begin in Acts chapter 1... I would like to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read Luke chapter 1, and then turn immediately over to Acts uh, chapter 1, and I think uh, you will see why I'm doing this. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 1, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed to me good also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then over in Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning to see the business of the church. Not what we might want it to be, but Lord, rather what you desire. May we be conformed to your plan. And Lord, I would pray that you would help us to burn with the passion for missions and for your glory. God, speak to us. Teach us. Even as we read in Acts chapter 2 that the people continued in the teaching and doctrine of the apostles... Lord, may we continue in your word. Teach us. And may your spirit empower us. And may he bring conviction. Lord, add to your fellowship as you desire. May we be a community of salt and light. Telling others about Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Folks, I'm excited to begin a study in the book of Acts because the book of Acts shows us what Jesus continued to do through his church. We saw back there in Luke chapter 1 that Luke is writing to this man Theophilus. And he wanted Theophilus to be thoroughly convinced of what Jesus began to do. And in the book of Acts, Luke writes, showing Theophilus again what Jesus continues to do. And so we see that Luke wrote to this man. And uh, he wanted him to understand all of the evidence. And he wanted Theophilus to see that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Now it's believed that perhaps Theophilus was a very important Roman official. He's a Roman official who had either recently come to faith in Christ or he was right on the verge of coming to faith in Christ and Luke wanted him to be well established in the faith. And so Luke says that he had carefully researched everything so that Theophilus might know the certainty of everything related to the life and mission of Jesus Christ. Now we know that uh, Luke was a physician who has been judged by the scholarly community of today to be nothing short of a first-rate historian as well. I think at this moment I'll I'll diverge a little bit just to tell you a little bit about history and the context of all this. In the 19th century, 
There was a man by the name of F.C. Bauer. And he led a German school, of the, the school of, of Tübingen, at Tübingen. And it was one of the German schools of higher criticism. Now the German schools of higher criticism uh, had what we would call some pretty extreme left-wing views. And unfortunately, they ended up casting doubt on huge portions of the Word of God. Now, I think it'd be safe to say and accurate to say that the German schools of higher criticism had a very negative impact on American Christianity in the 20th century. You see, many of our professors here in the United States went over there and they studied in those schools And then they came back and American Christianity at the time was was steeped in the liberalism of these German schools. Some of you here today uh, might have heard some of the results of that school of thought. Maybe you were taught that Adam and Eve were not real persons. Maybe you were taught that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is not to be taken literally. Maybe you were taught that the Bible is just a book that is full of myths, that there were no miracles, there was not even the resurrection. But folks, fortunately today, the whole premise and approach to biblical scholarship that came out of that era has been shown to be flat out wrong. And the school of thought in the academic world now has changed. In fact, in the last 60 or 70 years, biblical scholarship has shown us that we have a Bible that we can trust. We can know as we open our Bibles and read that we are reading the very Word of God. And we can have that confidence. And that's why it's almost comical if it weren't weren't so sad. When some of our young people in high school today, when they go away to their first year in college and they take some of these religion courses and and they come back, I've seen some of the things they've shared with me, they come back and and share what the professor is saying. And and I want to write back to that professor and say, where in the world have you been the last 50 or 60 years? They're still hanging on to some of those old German higher criticism schools of thought. Now the only reason I mention all of that is because that particular school of thought took aim at Luke. And cast doubts on Luke's abilities. A man by the name of Ramsey, William Ramsey, greatly influenced by uh, F.C. Bauer and, and the Tubingen School, he set forth to write a book showing that Luke cannot be trusted in his historical reporting. But in the middle of his writing that book, he had a conversion of sorts after doing all of his research. And instead, he ended up writing a book showing that Luke is a historian of first-rate quality. People in the academic world today would say Luke would get an absolute A-plus on all of his historical recordings in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. 
Well, we know that the book of Acts provides us with the standard of what the church is supposed to be and do. It is the inspired account of the beginnings of the church. There are a lot of people today wondering what the future of the church is going to be and what is our mission going to look like. And there's a lot of confusion going on about the work and ministry of the church today. And what we need to do is go back and look and see what the early apostles were about. And we need to revisit again God's plan for his church from the beginning. Now the title, there's been a lot of titles that have been given to the book of Acts. Some say we ought to call it just Acts. Others say the Acts of the Apostles. Some describe it as the acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is mentioned no less than 50 times in this book. Others call it the acts of Jesus Christ. As John R.W. Stott writes, the closest title, though the longest and the clumsiest, might be the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit working through his apostles. We see Jesus working through his Holy Spirit who in turn works through the apostles. And we get a model and a plan of what the Lord continues to do through his church. Folks, that means that the book of Acts is such a pivotal book in the New Testament. Do you remember that discussion that Jesus had with his disciples when he carried them to the region of Caesarea Philippi? When they got there to Caesarea Philippi, he said, who do men say that I am? And they responded, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, speaking for the group, said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounced that blessing upon Simon Peter. And then he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, folks, the book of Acts is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. We see in the book of Acts the unfolding of when Jesus Christ is beginning to build his church. The book of Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off. It'd be difficult to overestimate the importance of the book of Acts. Without Acts, we would go from the Gospels directly into the letters and we would suddenly find that the apostles are writing to groups of people each called a church in a certain city and we'd be left scratching our heads wondering what's going on here? What's happened? How did this group come into being? What's happened since the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Without Acts, we wouldn't have any of those answers. It's like one of the early church fathers wrote, Tertullian. He said, those who do not accept this volume of Scripture can have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, for they cannot know whether the Holy Spirit has yet been sent to the disciples. Neither can they claim to be the church since they cannot prove when this body was established or where it was cradled. And so the book of Acts is that transition between or that bridge between the gospels and the epistles, the letters. It is our primary authority for the history and the establishment and growth of the early church. 
Now as we study through the book of Acts, we're going to be exposed to about nine or ten key themes. First of all, the priority of evangelism. Secondly, the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, community life. We're going to see how the uh, early disciples met together in the church and took care of one another and prayed for one another and encouraged one another and together they went out on mission. There's the community life of the church. We're going to see teaching, how important teaching is to the believer. We'll be exposed to the priority of prayer. In fact, uh, out of the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, 14 chapters deal with prayer or prayer is mentioned. We also see the breaking down of human barriers in Christ. As the gospel is spread, it's not for the Jew alone, but it's for the Jew and the Gentile. Then we'll see the place of suffering. As the disciples preached the gospel and witnessed, they suffered for their faith. We'll see the sovereignty of God. Even through suffering, the early church saw that God was working out His redemptive purposes. We'll see the Jewish reaction to the gospel that when the Jews rejected Jesus, the gospel was turned to the Gentile. And finally, the legal status of Christianity. Despite all of the accusations against Christians over and over again, we will see Paul, for example, giving defense of the faith before Roman officials and repeatedly they could not find anything illegal about this new religion as they referred to it. Now folks, this morning I want you and I to start looking at uh, thinking in terms of being a mission-minded people. Being a mission-minded people, what is God's assignment for us today? And we ought to come away from this study with at least two convictions. Conviction number one, we ought to want to see more of our people involved in ministry. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, God has given different gifts to the church. But all these gifts come together to, find, uh, to form one body in a location like this. And through this one body of people with diverse gifts, we have a common mission to go and tell the world about Christ. And a second conviction we ought to come away with is a, a renewed emphasis on the Great Commission and Missions. Now let's start today in Acts 1. And we're going to see three things spelled out here. That the Lord wanted his disciples to be convinced. He wanted them to be empowered. And he wanted them to be focused. First of all, I want you to see that we are to be convinced. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Down to the very depths of our souls, we've got to believe as the church, as the body of Christ, ladies and gentlemen, you and I need to believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope for a lost world because indeed He is. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
Do you believe that? That's what the Bible states. Folks, if we are not convinced about that one truth right there, you know what's going to happen? It's going to water down our efforts in taking the gospel out of this place and telling the lost about Christ. At best, we're going to be half-hearted in our mission. And so we need to be thoroughly convinced. I think uh, uh, years ago, uh, the article that a London newspaper man wrote, he was an atheist. And in that article, he was writing to Christians. He said, I do not believe what you claim to believe. He said, but I want to tell you this. If I did believe that, if I did believe that people without Jesus Christ If they die in that condition, they are destined for an eternity without Christ, without God. He said, if I believe that, I could not go to bed at night and sleep in peace knowing that there was even one person in my circles of influence who was not a believer yet. Folks, that's the kind of urgency you and I need to have about our task. And to have that kind of urgency about our task, we need to be convinced that this indeed is the Word of God. God has told us exactly what He has done and exactly what He intends for you and I. We need to be urgent. You know, Jesus in John chapter 4 talked to his disciples. He said, you're saying yet four months and then the harvest. Jesus said, but I tell you, lift up your eyes and look even now. The fields are white unto harvest. There needs to be an urgency. And if there's going to be a proper urgency about our task, there's got to be a firm conviction in our hearts. Some years ago in Christianity Today, there was a moving story about the poor in Jamaica. And the article stated, as the garbage trucks roll into Riverton dump, scores of men, women, and children picking through the trash on the hill raise their heads to see what might be coming in next. A woman yells and the crowd is soon at her side. From 30 feet away, you can smell the rancid chicken that she's uncovered. She holds it up. And flies are already devouring it. No matter, she comments that this is food for her family tonight. The woman's name is Claudette Baker. She has three young children, ages five, seven, and nine. She says, I come to the dump for food, and when I don't find anything, we go hungry. Yesterday, all I got was two biscuits and a piece of cheese, but today... We'll have chicken. Another man, George Roberts, age 73, lives in in the rusted out shell of a van in the dump. He says, when it's cold at night, the wind blows in, and I do what I can to set my mind on not feeling it. I also fight the hunger. When asked if life is hard, he nods and says, my only hope in life is knowing that very soon I'll be dead. Now, folks, try telling people like that four months. Jesus wanted his disciples to be firmly convinced 
about his death, burial, and especially his resurrection, that he was alive again. And he wanted them to understand that and go with a sense of urgency to a lost and a dying world. Look again at what he says in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them uh, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's talking there about this 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. When over and over again Jesus appeared to his disciples and various groups of people. That's what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, the Simon Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. When you take all the New Testament as a whole and look at all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples, you come up with a number something like 17 appearances. Now what Luke's referring to here, the 40 days between uh, his resurrection and then his ascension, during that 40-day period, some say there's 11 appearances, others 12 appearances of Jesus. But the message is the same. Jesus wanted them again to understand that he was alive. He was risen. Verse 3, Luke uses the word proofs. And and in the original language, that word there is a very strong language, a very strong word that means that Jesus didn't want any doubt to be in anybody's mind that he indeed was alive. Folks, there are multiple strands of testimony that verify the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, you have the evidence of the empty tomb. And no body that was ever produced. Nobody ever produced in spite of the fact that both the Romans and the Jews would have liked nothing more than to have produced a dead body. And yet they were never able to find a dead body. Secondly, the evidence of the appearances recorded in the New Testament that we've just read about. Thirdly, the evidence of the dramatic change in the disciples from timid cowards to bold witnesses. How do you account for the disciples the way they were in the Gospels and then you look at them in the book of Acts? Something dramatic has happened to them. And then there's the evidence of the Lord's day. Why would a group of Jews who for centuries had tenaciously held to worshiping on the Sabbath, why all of a sudden do you have a group of Jews worshiping on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the Lord's day? That says to us that something must have happened to make them do that. And indeed it did. The resurrection. 
And then you've got to account for the life of the Apostle Paul. What explains his change? Because early on he was known as Rabbi Saul and he was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians. He would have some of them killed. He would have some of them put on trial and put in prison. And yet something happened in Saul. He becomes the Apostle Paul, the greatest persecutor of Christianity, now becomes the greatest defender of the faith and the greatest missionary the church has ever known. How do you explain that? All of that evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he was alive because he wanted them passionate. He wanted them urgent about their business. He knew that if they didn't realize that he was alive at best, they would be half-hearted in everything that they did. Folks, what do we need to understand today in the church? We need to understand more than ever that what God has written in his word to us is fully trustworthy. We can build our very lives upon this. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the Father. And one day, perhaps soon, we don't know, one day he's coming back for his bride. You and I need to be convinced of that, that we might be urgent about our task. One writer has written that the problem in the, in the Western Hemisphere right now, the problem with the church in the Western Hemisphere is that we are caught up in so much materialism and narcissistic entertainment and in the Eastern Hemisphere, they're caught up in looking for the God within. And so while the Western Hemisphere is distracted, much of the Eastern Hemisphere is in unbelief and chasing after uh, other religions. Meanwhile, there is a lost world out there. There are men and women and boys and girls who desperately need to hear about Jesus Christ. And you've got to understand and I've got to understand that we are God's plan of taking the gospel to a lost world. Is there any doubt in your mind about this book? Is there any doubt in your mind about who Jesus is and what he did? If there's any doubt in your mind, you need to settle that doubt. You need to become firmly convinced so that with a passion you will be about God's business. But not only did he want them firmly convinced, but I want you to notice secondly that we're to be empowered. In verse 4, Luke says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Before the disciples were to just get busy and run out and start their work, the first thing they needed to do was wait. You see, folks, for a supernatural task, we need supernatural power. 
And we can expect that when we are about his plan, he will, he will unleash his power. He unleashes his power when his people are about his plan. Being from Galilee, these disciples would have naturally just wanted to go back home uh, to Galilee and wait there. But Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem and wait. Jerusalem was the place where Jesus had been crucified outside of the city walls. And Jerusalem was going to be the place that God had chosen to pour out His Spirit on the church. Folks, there are some unique things about the day of Pentecost. You see, Pentecost was a Jewish festival that celebrated the harvest. It celebrated the first fruits and God's provision. And being the time of year that it was in, weather was pretty good for travel. And so pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire would come into Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. There would be Jews from all over the world speaking all of the tongues of those nations that they had moved to. The, the languages of the people where they'd moved. And, and yet they would come back to celebrate this festival together I want you to understand uh, what, what's happening here when Jesus is promising this power filling the disciples with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost would accomplish two things right off most obviously the disciples would be empowered from on high but secondly Immediately the gospel was going to be heard by this multitude of people from all over the world. And it would be heard in their own language. Think of the miracle of that. And as that happened and, and, and Peter stood up and preached his sermon at Pentecost, the Bible says that immediately 3,000 souls were added to the church. Now I want to compare this a moment to the Old Covenant. Remember back in the Old Covenant in the book of Exodus when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, to receive the Ten Commandments. When he came back down off of that mountain, what did he find? He found the people caught up in idolatry. They were worshiping the golden calf. And what happened? 3,000 of them died. What happened in the new covenant when God poured out his spirit on the church? 3,000 received life. And you know what that's a testimony of? That is a testimony of the fact that the law brings death, but the spirit brings life. Folks, just as they needed power, we need power. What do we need to do? We need to have clean lives and lives that wait upon God. If there's any sin in your life, if there's any spiritual neglect of your devotion, everything you do for God will be done with little power and little effectiveness. Now, let me say a word about the baptism of the Spirit that the disciples experienced. I want you to keep in mind that as of yet, as we're reading Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit had not come. 
He had not been given. Now they had a concept of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament. The Old Testament would come upon a prophet, say, somebody like Elijah or somebody like Samson. The the Holy Spirit would come upon that individual and anoint that person for whatever God had assigned them to do. But the Hebrews did not have any kind of concept of the Holy Spirit coming upon every single believer. You see, that was going to be a truth revealed in the new covenant. Jesus had been preparing them for this. In John 14 and 16, he spoke to them about the Holy Spirit. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I will ask the Father to send another of like essence in nature. Somebody else just like me. He was referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. And he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be your teacher and your guide and your comforter and your helper. And he will continue to show you the things that you need to know. Jesus had tried to prepare them for this. Well, on the day of Pentecost, that's exactly what happened. Now, folks, let me say today for believers, every single believer experiences at their conversion the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can't even come to faith in Christ without the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus Christ is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts our heart of sin. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings about this spiritual birth, this regeneration in us. Salvation is not of man, it is of the Lord. It is the Lord who brings about this new birth in us and he does that through his Holy Spirit. And so in the New Testament, every person, when, as soon as they come to faith in Jesus Christ and they are saved, they have the Holy Spirit. There are some groups of Christians who say we need to, you become a believer and then sometime in the future you get the Spirit. No, the believer gets the Holy Spirit when he becomes a believer. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 1.13 says that the Holy Spirit is God's seal upon his children. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we are even able to cry out, Abba, Father. And so in that sense, every genuine believer has the Spirit. But obviously, there's an ongoing need in our lives. Every day, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be yielded to God. We need to be clean. If there's anything in our lives where we know that we're in disobedience to God, if we have offended a fellow brother or sister, we need to go to them and make it right. We need to make sure that as far as we know, our lives are clean and pure before God. It's like David said in the Psalms, search me and try me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me and cleanse me. 
We need to be clean. And we need to wait before God. Everything we do, every role that you have in the church, whether it's teaching, whether it's leading in some other capacity, whether it's taking part in the music ministry, whatever you do in the church uh, for for the building up of God's church, we need to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be empowered just like they needed to be empowered. And then a third thing, we are to be focused. Look at what Jesus began telling them in verse 6. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what did these disciples want to get caught up in? They wanted to get caught up in tangents. And what is the tangent that they wanted to get caught up in? As soon as Jesus talked to them about the Holy Spirit coming, what was the question they asked here? Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I want to point out to you that that is not an unreasonable question. You see, the Bible speaks frequently of the end times. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, there's a whole chapter in our Bibles, Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, where Jesus instructed his disciples on the end times and what's going to happen. And so their question here is not insignificant. Also, we have the book of Daniel. We have the book of Revelation about end times. We have many prophecies in the Bible about end times. And so it's not an insignificant subject. But I want you to notice that they are still blind as to how and when it was going to happen. They are continuing to misunderstand this just like everybody did uh, on the the day, uh, uh, Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. When he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, what was everybody expecting was going to happen next that week? They were expecting that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans, that he was going to establish the throne of David right then and there and sit on that throne and begin immediately ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. That's what they were expecting. They weren't looking for the cross. They weren't looking for the Messiah to die. They thought he was going to start reigning right then and there. And since it didn't happen that way and Jesus is now telling his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit, it's natural that they begin asking. They're they're thinking, okay, now that's going to happen what we expect. But I want you to see what Jesus does in verse 7. He squashes all of that. He doesn't want his disciples caught up in different tangents No matter how important that tangent may be. Folks, he doesn't want us to be distracted when it comes to our primary mission. 
Jesus is coming back. Yes, it could be soon. Yes, it might be. He may come back for his bride before this day ends. Who knows? But the thing that we are to be about, we're to be focused on being his witnesses. It's in his sovereign plan when he comes back. The point is, are we busy about his work until then? So we need to be careful of distractions and tangents that we get off on. You know, God's written a lot of things in His Word. We're given biblical principles for our finances. We're given biblical instruction for our marriages and our families. There are hundreds of things that we ought to be talking about in the discipleship process to teach people in the whole counsel of God. But Jesus' point here in Acts 1 is that no subject in the Bible, however important, is to keep us from our mission. We're to be focused as a people on our mission. As a Christian, you're to be focused and I'm to be focused. You see, in the body of Christ, there are many different gifts that are given. We all have different gifts. The gifts are varied and diverse. But the Bible says as Christ's body, we come together under the headship of Christ. And every one of us as a part of the body, we're functioning together to make a complete body. The eye is needed, the ear is needed, the the mouth is needed, the hands are needed, the feet are needed. Every part of, of the body is needed. We have varying gifts, but while we have varying gifts, we have one mission. All of our varying gifts put together in the body here to strengthen the body of Christ in this location that we might be equipped to go out in this community and beyond and do that which God has called us to do. Are we using our gifts to do that? Are we using our resources? Are we using our time? Are we using our energies to be about that? We are to be witnesses. We're not responsible for the harvest. That's God's work. As we study through the book of Acts, we'll read over and over again how God added to his church. The disciples went out and were faithful, and the scripture says, and God added to his church daily those who were being saved. God takes care of the harvest. You and I are to be about sowing the seed. You see, folks, it's God's plan to use human instruments. And he has chosen to use our words. He's chosen to use our words in in two aspects that I think of right off the bat. Number one, our testimony. Every child of God, every believer has a testimony of how and when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And how Jesus has changed their life. Every believer has a testimony that they can tell others about. And then secondly, there's the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Bible says the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
God has chosen to use the preaching and teaching of his word that people might believe. The scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul asks in Romans 10, how will they believe if they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone is sent? He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who go preaching the good news. God has chosen us. He wants to empower us and fill us. That all of us together as a diverse body, as a way of life, not just here and there a little bit, but daily even, as a way of life, we as a body, as we're scattered, we gather in here this morning to worship and we're about to be scattered to serve. And all around us, God is at work. And we need to have our eyes open and our ears open because God wants to use you and me to accomplish his mission are we about his business are we focused on that and they were to start where they were Jerusalem what's our Jerusalem our county here then Judea that would be like our state then Samaria that would be like the country and by the way too Samaria represents those places Uh, that you don't want to go. You see, the last place a Jew wanted to be was in Samaria. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And so we've even got to go to those places maybe that we don't want to go to. And then he says, to the uttermost ends of the world. Folks, that's what we've got to keep focused on as a church and as a people. God doesn't want us simply coming in, sitting and soaking, going home, coming back next week, uh, sitting and soaking. God has a mission for me and you to be about. One of the most important verses in the Bible may be uh, verse 9 for the believer. I want you to see what he said there in verse 9. In verse 9 it says, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He was taken up. I want you to think about that a moment. We talk in the church a lot about the resurrection, and we should. That's a key foundational doctrine. We talk a lot in the church about the second coming of Christ, and we should. That's a key doctrine. We don't talk so much about the ascension, and we should. What happened in the ascension? That ought to be a tremendous encouragement to every believer. Jesus uh, ascended to the Father. The scripture says he is at the right hand of the Father. Now think about that a minute. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says he sat down after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is when it comes to sin. What needed to be done with our sin. Jesus did it all. 
There on the cross, whatever needed to be taken care of with sin so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Jesus did it. That's why he said, it is finished. And so as far as the work of redemption, the payment of sin, he's done it. So in that regard, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But the New Testament also says that he's standing at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing standing? He's guiding the mission of the church and he's praying for us. Paul says in Romans 8, 34 that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for us. 1 John 2, 1 says he's there at the right hand of the Father and he's our advocate, he's our defense attorney. Folks, think about that. As we are about his mission, Jesus Christ is praying for us. And John 14 says, while he's there at the right hand of the Father, he's also preparing a place for us. And so you and I need to understand we are not alone in this mission. As Jesus commissions us to go out, it's just like he said at the end of Matthew 28, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As we're about his business, he's right there in our midst. He's with us. He's encouraging us. He's teaching us. He's giving us his wisdom and and counsel. And he's given us his power. So that we can do what he's asked us to do. Because we can't do what he's asked us to do in the flesh. We need him. The question now is, are we filled, focused, and obedient? Folks, this is the business of the church. Again, I want you to understand the business of the church is not just coming to a particular building and sitting and listening, going home. We're grateful for people coming and sitting and listening. Because again, faith cometh by hearing. That's needed. But the church, the life of the believer is more than coming and listening and hearing. It's going out on mission. Every single one of us going out on mission. In the New Testament, every believer, every believer, not just the apostles, not just the deacons that we'll read about in Acts chapter 6, every single believer is to be about Christ's mission. How are we doing at that? You see, every day when we get up, Rather than just thinking about the business of the day, what we've got to do, what we've got to accomplish. Folks, do we also sit before God and say, God, what what might you have for me today? Open my eyes, open my ears, open my mind, open my heart to those around me that you might have a divine appointment for me. 
God, help me to be on mission with you today and not just simply checking the boxes off of what I want to do. Folks, that's how a Christian is supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to conduct our life. Realizing that he's sovereign God and the business that he is about. The the Bible says the father is putting all of his enemies at his feet until one day he does come and reign and rule. And right now through his church on earth he's using us to reach the lost. So that one day before the throne of God the praises and the hallelujahs going up to God will be from people of every tribe, nation and race. That's God's plan. And so we've got to get busy. We've got to go. Whatever we do, we've got to be about His business. Convinced, empowered, and focused. I want to challenge you to live your life that way and see what God will do. See what He is able to do. You know why we don't see more of the power of God? We don't hear more testimonies about just tremendous things God has done. To maybe bring somebody to saving faith. Or how he used us to minister to that person or that. You know why we don't hear much about that? It's because I think we get up and we are just planning our day. And not even thinking about God's agenda. I want to challenge you to be about God's agenda. I want to challenge myself to be about God's agenda. That every day would be about Him and how He wants to use me and how He wants to use you. Amen? Are you convinced He's alive? Are you fulfilling the role that God has appointed to you to be a witness? Again, remember, you're not responsible for the harvest, just the sowing of the seed. Are you focused? And are you greatly encouraged to know that as you're about His work, He's there at the right hand of the Father, and He's praying for you?